Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Rachel Corbett, who is a lecturer at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School in Sydney, a writer with news.com.au, a social commentator on Channel 9 and Sky News, among a host of other things. Rachel is best known for her work on radio over the past 15 years with Triple M and many other stations around the country. We chat about her life now as a freelancer, how she stumbled into radio, and why she never likes to talk about her appearance on Big Brother. Rachel is one of the most intelligent, thoughtful and genuine people I've ever met, so I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Rachel Corbett. Hello, Ralph Tucker. How are you? I am very well. Lovely to be here in this uh, audio medium with you. Yeah, we're <laughs> at Afters, where yeah. you currently teach. Yes. It's one of a myriad of things that you do at the moment. I was going to, we normally start off this thing by, you know, introducing people where they're from, and it'd be like, well, what are you doing? But it's like a case of what aren't you doing at the moment? That's it. I am the quintessential jack of all trades, master of none at this point in time. I think the other word for that is freelancer. <laughs> and how are you finding that life? I love it. I really do. I mean, I my background is in radio and I've worked a, a long time in radio doing shows for Triple M and Today FM um, and some regional stations. And I guess you sort of get into the groove of wanting and waiting for and expecting a contract in that world. And so you kind of end up living your life in two-year blocks of, of – um, you know, solid pay. And then every, at the end of that two year block, you sort of think again, oh God, is everything going to go? But this kind of idea of actually being completely in control of when you work, how you work, how much you work, how little you work, what you earn, that kind of thing, uh, is terrifying before you leap into it. And then once you've swum out into the warm waters of the freelance world, you wonder how you would ever go back. We'll touch on it again later, but do you know what the four things that come up when you type Rachel Corbett into Google? Oh, one of them I just hope we don't talk about. I know what one of them is and I just hate even bringing it up. The th- other three I wouldn't know. Would one it be? Would one, it... Is, one is I'm going to go to the one last that you least want to talk oh, about. Oh, God, yeah. Wiki, Facebook, Instagram, Big Brother. <laughs> How does that work? What do you mean, how does that work? Well, how does it come up that these are the things that you're known for? Yes. Well, first of all, I didn't know I had a Wikipedia page. Do I? I don't know. I haven't even clicked on it. It's just like one of these things. It's just like Rachel Corbett. Then comes up Wiki. It comes up Big Brother. It comes up Facebook and Instagram. So. My, it's so interesting that my Instagram feed comes up because I am one of those people who has absolutely no interest in social media. I started up a personal Facebook page for my work stuff. Hilariously after I'd finished 14 years of full-time work, when I was actually out in the freelancing, I started doing it. And I I sort of feel compelled to post on that because I think I'm supposed to, but I don't really do a great job of it. The Instagram, I mean, there must be 25 photos on there from the last however long (laughs) Instagram's been around. Why is that coming up? Well, apparently popular there. I don't know. It makes the SEO thing dance or something. I don't know what it is. Good to see my website's nowhere (laughs) on there. Great. I'm doing really well whatever I'm doing with that. See, I'm just a nut with technology. I've got no idea. Let's talk about Big Brother quickly. Oh, no, Ralph, please. You're a dear friend of mine. Don't do this to me. So that was obviously the thing that got you into notoriety from the get-go, then you were smart enough to branch out there and forge an identity that wasn't associated with that whatsoever on your own merits, where there's a few of your cohorts that sort of (laughs) seem to leverage off that and that's what they do. Was it a memorable experience for you? I guess the reason that I don't like to talk about it is that I don't like what I think it says about me something that I don't believe is true. I think when people hear that, they assume, oh, you wanted to be famous. And the reality is that I wanted anything but that. I didn't have any clue that that is what 
people go in there for. It was the very first show I had gone in there because I'd seen an ad on TV for it and I thought, I hate law school. Uh, I want to do something interesting. I don't know what that is. And then I saw that one night and I thought, I'm going to just send in a tape for this. I sort of had no idea of what the show was about. I didn't know what would come out of it. And when I came out the other end, I started to get people asking me to come and do things in radio stations. And and that was just never something I'd considered or thought would be somewhere that I would end up. That wasn't, I thought I'd go right back to university and just keep getting, being bored in my law degree with this interesting sort of time in my life. So I guess that's where I don't like talking about it because, and and I've also spent a long time distancing myself from it because in that beginning stage, it was kind of all people wanted to associate you with. And from very early on, once I said, okay, I'm going to try this radio thing. Um, If people think that I can bring something to the table, I'm going to give it a real red hot crack. And then I think after the first year, I asked on every show that I worked on, can we please never mention that? I don't want to be associated with that. I want to be an independent performer. Um, and later on in my career, people would still bring it up. And I remember having one conversation with somebody who, who kind of picked a fight with me about the fact that I wouldn't bring it up and was sort of th- saying, why, if it's where you've came from, come from? And I said, because it's not why I'm still here. So that that for me is so far removed from where I feel I am now and how I feel about what my approach to this industry has been, which is work really hard, try and get good at the craft. You know, I have real respect for what happens in the studio and I think that, you know, it, it's more than just coming off television and it should be more than just coming off television and, and coming into to an industry with zero experience. That happens a lot. It's happening a lot at the moment. Um, and, you know, I, I always wanted to be somebody who didn't rest on that, um, who actually tried to be a good performer. You didn't know what kind of show it was going to be and how big it was going to be. I think I recall being in the UK when the first series was in England and it was absolutely massive and I was still there when it came out in, a, in Australia and people going, there's this great show, I said, it's going to be bigger than anything that you'll ever think of because it was groundbreaking in so many different ways. You had more insight than I did because when I saw the ad for it, before it had ever turned up, I thought this will never fly. I thought this is going to go, Who we'd never seen anything like this and no. I thought to myself, oh, this will be an absolute no one will watch show. So I guess that was why I was. I sort of thought, oh, this would be fun and interesting to kind of do because I'm thinking to myself we're going to be in some house and nobody's even going to care. So yeah. you were a bit more onto it than I was. Yeah, <laughs> so let's go back a step then. Law school. Oh, yeah. Was that a family-forced thing or was that something that I've got no idea when I've finished high school, um, I'm smart, uh, that's something that I want to go into? Where? How did that path start? I wanted to do photography and the reality of it is that I went to a school that, um, and maybe my parents as well, there was this real sense that if you got a mark you did whatever that mark allowed you to do. So if you were interested in something that had a UAI or TR or whatever it was called at that time, um, 30 points lower than what you got, well, that was a missed opportunity. You know, Mm. you didn't do that. You went to university for what your mark could let you get into. And so a big part of it was I could go to law school. I went to a school where that was kind of what you did. I think I was a good debater at school, and so I think there were a whole bunch of us debating kids that went to law school thinking we were going to be on an episode of Law and Order, and in reality it wasn't that at all. And I also think that I turned up on the first day of class and I knew this wasn't for me. I knew I wasn't going to be passionate about it. I saw how other people in class had an interest in it that I didn't necessarily have. Um, but I also really am so grateful that I went there partially for the people that I met. Um, some of them I still write with now. A lot of them, I mean, you would be amazed to know how many lawyers are now in, com- in comedy, TV, writing, radio. You know, it seems to be the way that you end up, you know, the people like me end up realizing we don't want to be lawyers and then going and doing this kind of thing. Why is that? I don't know. I think it sort of breeds uh, a type of person that is potentially a good speaker, you know, a good talker. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily put myself in this category, but I just went to university with a lot of really smart people. And it's intelligent behind wit and coming up 
with stuff that's funny that can appeal to people that just switches that yeah. light on. Yeah, and I think one of the great things I did at university was the Law Review, which is always, um, you know, it's basically a show on at the Footbridge Theatre at Sydney University and it's written and acted and everything's done by the people in the law department. There's one for the engineering department. There's one for the arts department. Um, but the Law Review, you know, you will often hear stories about people on our television screens now, your Andrew O'Keefe's, you know, that have come up through Sydney University yeah. Law Review and being a part of that where you see these people, you know, at the ripe old age of 17, churning out 15 comedy scripts for a show, it's just really magical to watch. And one of the guys that I work with now or have worked with in the past writing on a show for the ABC called The Roast, his name was Tom Glasson or his name is Tom Glasson, he's still with us. Didn't <laughs> he didn't change it. Um, but, you know, he was prolific in his writing for um, The Law Review and subsequently has gone on to, to write a lot. He works full-time as a writer now and, you know, he's brilliant. And so we had that really wonderful thing of, of we started to do this show together in, out in the real world for the ABC. We're sitting around a table and there would be some moments where I would look at him and just say, can you believe that we met when we were 17 on stage at the Law Review? Mm. You know, and now here we are working in the real world t- together. So I'm really grateful, even though it didn't, I didn't end up sort of using it, I am really grateful that I, I went there and did that. So that Big Brother experience then led to... We're going to talk about Big Brother all the time. No, we're not going to do it, but <laughs> just like it led to the, I guess, opening of the door to the radio industry mm-hmm. and the entertainment industry. It was a platform that you found really comfortable. Yeah. Is that take me through that experience of, of of coming out of that hysteria and then into, for want of a better term, a, a normal job in the in the media. Um, I didn't really deal very well on the flip side of of the whole experience because I I was in no way prepared for the attention and I was not very comfortable with it. Which in subsequent years has always I think been probably a. a bit of a downfall in terms of the fact that I'm not very interested in celebrity and when you work in an industry where celebrity can you know, um, determine how much work you get, how much you get paid. It's a currency, right? It's a currency and it's never interested me and I don't think it's ever going to interest me. So I struggled a lot with that because I just wanted things to go back to normal and they, to be honest, took a long time to go back to normal. So, um, but I think working in the industry, it's interesting. I I don't want to say that I was good at the job back when I started it but I was comfortable and I found that weird because I'd never thought of it as a potential job before. But from the very first show that anybody asked me to come in and sit on and do a trial on, I brought seven or eight ideas. You know, I didn't ever have nothing to say. You know, I don't necessarily think I was bringing anything spectacular to the table, but I think I was really surprised that I kind of just did it. Um, so, yeah, it felt very natural to me even though I hadn't kind of considered it, which is weird because you think, how am I sitting here doing something that I've never considered before and it feels very much like something I've considered? I think your attitude gives a lot to that in the fact that even setting up this podcast today, I've done, you know, 10 or 11 of these to begin with and not one of the people that I spoke to before asked me about prep. You said, do I need to do any prep for this? So yeah. I think... Is that kind of work ethic or the idealism of not wanting to fail at something because you don't want to sound dumb, you've brought that along from the the get-go. Like you said, you came to the shows with seven or eight ideas to begin with. Not everybody would do that. Yeah, and I think in the later years that's definitely served me well. I think right from the beginning I probably – it probably was a work ethic that was there – you know, from, I mean, from the beginning, you know, that's like I want to study hard for exams to do well. You know, it's the same kind of principle. I couldn't bear sitting down in a room with a bunch of people and bringing nothing to the table. I think there's an arrogance about that that I don't like. Um, and so, and even now, you know, we're sitting at afters here, I'm teaching here at the moment. And that's one of the things that I sort of say is the big takeaway from my time in front of these people that come and want to learn about radio. I'm like, if I can tell you anything and there's only one thing you learn, it is be 
prepared. Be that person that's in the studio with a million different tangents to go off on. Be the person who has read three, four, five articles about something so that you know each angle. You know, you it, not only does it mean you bring more to the table, but it also means you're very rarely left out on a limb with nowhere to go because you, you know, you can always take a conversation somewhere. So I think I've always, yeah, I think I've always been um, maybe concerned about prep mostly because, yeah, I don't want to fail. I suppose that's where it comes from. So where did it take you to begin with? You've travelled pretty much all over the, the country mm-hmm. to, I guess, ply the craft and, and learn as much as you can from radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've travelled everywhere, pretty, worked in every capital city except for Darwin. Um, and I really, I got to a point where I no longer wanted to move. I was actually finding that quite difficult, um, because while the work is good, it's a fairly lonely existence, you know, when you're moving around, especially if you're doing breakfast hours, it's really tough, uh, as a lifestyle. Like the the new kid in school, like every other year. Yeah. And, you know, you're not hanging around the office with everybody in a way, you know, there is a separation between the show and the rest of the office. And, and I've always found that a bit weird, but it exists and it's very hard to break down. And so if you're leaving the studio and the, and the, you know, you're kind of working independently and then you're leaving around about lunchtime, one or two, depending on how long you're putting in there. And so it's, it's hard to build up a a network there. So yeah, I did work around the country a lot and then eventually said, look, I, I, you know, I don't mind if I don't work in radio again, but I certainly know that I, I want to be home in Sydney. But some of those, particularly in I was working on the Central Coast for a couple of years with a guy, Paddy Gerard, who's still working there now. Yeah. Um, and that was such a good training ground for me because we had a four-hour show. We were on from five to nine every day. So that is a lot of content to yeah. come up with, especially as a young, like 20-something-year-old. Um, but also you are the producer, the phone operator, the editor, the, you know, you're the person that goes in and does voiceovers in the, for the ads. You do absolutely everything. And so you get a really good training ground in all of those elements. So for each subsequent job, you know, you've got so many tools in your little toolkit to bring on. So I I really enjoyed that. So I guess that gives you a greater appreciation for the people that do those jobs when you're on on air as part of a, a team where somebody who may have been just transported into a gig like that doesn't really understand what's going on behind the scenes? Particularly producers. I have a massive amount of respect for producers on TV, radio. I think they do the lion's share of the work, particularly in television, they do the lion's share of the work. And in radio, I mean, you know, it's it's the talent's job to come up with the crazy ideas and then handball it to the producers who make an idea that seems almost impossible somehow happen. The work that goes into that and the time they have to put in, a lot of those producers, especially in breakfast radio, are turning up at 3 a.m. and leaving at 3 p.m. when some talent walk in at 6 and leave at 9. Um, and, I, yeah, particularly the producers, I have a massive amount of respect. And I think on any show I've ever worked on, it's been absolutely essential for me to make sure that those producers feel like they are as much a part of the content of the show and creating the show, but also that they understand that they are respected and appreciated because good producers are really hard to find and I just don't know why if you have one, and I've had quite a few in my time, that you wouldn't make coming to work for them the best experience that it could possibly be because it's such a fickle industry and there's, you know, if they're not happy, they could just go somewhere else. And so, yeah, I have massive, that's, I have massive respect for producers. Who are your mentors in the early days when you think about your original uh, transition to radio? Gosh. Um, People that taught you things that you didn't necessarily know going in, coming in with a pretty much a blank canvas. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've really got to give – Mike Fitzpatrick, who's now in Melbourne, Triple M, you know, he was the guy that said to me, you'd be good in radio. And he was the first person that said, come in, we did a demo together. Um, and so, you know, he really did see something there that I didn't necessarily see. Uh, and I really appreciated that opportunity because I just wouldn't have, you know, I just wouldn't have ever thought to chase that down. Um, and in the later years, I really loved working with Paddy Gerard. I thought on, at CFM on the Central Coast, um, I thought he was a really great guy. And, you know, sometimes you get into shows and environments where you're not working with people who are 
generally terribly concerned about your well-being, mm-hmm. <laughs> emotional or otherwise, and Paddy was a real exception to that. I loved working with him um, and I, I owe a massive debt to him. I, I learned a lot from him. And then in the later years, I think Paul Murray for me taught me a lot about uh, putting a show together, editing, and, and I think when, when him and I started doing Drive at Triple M, and I saw just how much he could do, and I felt like I'd learned a lot in the time, but I, I felt like the poor cousin in that show. I, I felt like on air we were equal partners. I felt we really brought um, something equal to the table. But behind the scenes I saw, you know, he was, you know, planning the show, like putting the show into the rundown, editing the interviews, all of those kind of things because we didn't have a producer or anything. And I thought from very early on I saw him do that stuff. I was like, I want to know how to do that. And yeah. when he taught me that, taking that into my shows after that was really invaluable. So I think, yeah, he, he definitely helped me a lot. Anyone who knows the pair of you know that that is almost like a brother and sister relationship yeah. in many, many, many ways. Yeah. And how did that all mould together? Was it just a case of you guys just being on the same wavelength and just clicking? Because it was like a nighttime show that you mm-hmm. started with at first and then progressed to other things and it's now still a podcast for those people that are listening that are unaware of that. It's a special thing when you find an on-air uh, partner when it just works, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's um, with Paul and I, it was one of those interesting situations where Scott Muller, who is, you know, we owe a great deal of debt to him for getting us on the air originally. Um, he really saw something in Paul and I and pushed like I've never seen anybody push to get us on air. And, um, and it was, yeah, it was amazing. I'll, I'll forever owe a debt to him. Um, but literally Scott said, you know what? I think that you should, I, I had actually contacted Scott because we'd never met. And I said, Hey, this is me. Here's my, here's my demo and stuff. And he said, you know, I think you should meet this guy, Paul Murray. And Paul was about to do a night show. Paul and I met for coffee and there was just something about the way that we saw things, the way that we chatted. We just really clicked and, you know, he sort of said, oh, we should definitely do something. So we decided to get in the studio together and it was fun. It was great. And we put together something, you know, I mean, I think we only – recorded 20 minutes or something, but Scott really saw something in that. We felt something in that. And so Scott said about kind of, you know, editing, helping us edit that down into something that he could eventually he ended up, I think, pitching it to the board. It had to go that high because they basically had no plan to put, you know, he was planned, Paul was planned to have a night show in, but there was zero budget, no plan to have anybody with him. And, And Scott really pushed and said, look, I think that this show would work. And so we ended up doing nights and then we went to breakfast uh, for a little while and then we got to the stage where they were building the grill team behind the scenes and um, and they actually came to us and said, I think we have to get you off the air because people are becoming quite attached and you're not the, you know, we're, we were always just filling in space there while they put the grill team together and they was, you know, they said we need to get the grill team on because we're in a bit of trouble here yeah. if, if people get too attached. We don't want to drag you off if they like you. So then we ended up going to to drive and, and now we do a podcast together. Um, and so, yeah, the relationship, it was just one of those magical sort of arranged marriages that happen in uh, radio a lot but what is rare about it is that it works, you know. Well, you think about sitting in a studio three hours at a, at a time the studios, people might think of radio studios as being these big luxurious pads. They're not. You're in a confined space with somebody for three hours. There's going to be, at some stage, tension or blow-ups or whatever. Is that hard to work in that environment at times? Depends who you're working with. I'm pretty malleable, sometimes a little too malleable, I think. Uh, there's very little that you could throw my way, even in a tantrum, I'm pretty quick to call things if I think they're out of line, but I don't hold grudges if, you know, unless something's coming from a really horrible place and I think someone's a horrible person, then I think yeah. I don't want anything to do with you. But, you know, I can I can sometimes deal with a lot of idiosyncrasies and neuroses. Um, 
because ultimately it doesn't really serve the show any purpose to hang on to stuff. And I'm particular, I think one thing I am particularly good at is leaving crap outside the door when the studio, uh, when we're inside the studio and doing the show. I, I think sometimes people struggle with that. But for me, because you know, you've got to turn up the next day, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I've gone through breakups, you know, family d- disasters, deaths, the whole thing. And, you know, I, ju- I just don't think you're there to serve the listener and and there's never – no listener wants to get into the car after a long, hard day and hear some, how somebody's horrible situation when their job is sitting behind a microphone and talking every day and this guy's been digging a ditch all day or, you know, like mm. I just think it's a bit – you can't really let that stuff go in. So, so I've never really, I've had a few situations with people that have, that have been a bit nuts and hard to deal with. But for the most part, um, I think, I think that stuff's been fine. And you need to make it fine too, because you do, you end up seeing these people more than you see your nearest and dearest. You know, you're spending all day, every day sometimes with them. And you definitely, as a woman, I, every male co-host that I've ever had, I, I certainly see them more than they see their wife, you know, so you need to make it work. The Paul and Rach thing came to an end when Paul decided to go to 2UE. Was that hard for you to deal with initially? Because it was just, like you said, just so much fun for you every day when you turned up for work. Yeah, it was. I was really sad that the show ended. Um, But oddly, I have... I mean, I never... I think think he told me and we still had about six weeks to go on air... And like I said, you know, that stuff for me stays outside the studio. I was like, great, let's have a great six weeks to finish this up. But I've always had this odd switch in my head that I, as naff and cliche as it sounds, the old everything happens for a reason thing Mm -hmm. for me has been something that I've seen enough examples of that in my life to believe that there is a truth to it. So would I have loved Paul to stay? Yes. Did I say to him, I don't think you should go because you're an AM and an FM guy and I think you're one of the few people who could eat all the FM pie and then go and eat the AM Mm. pie later. Um, But I also understood that that was a real passion of his and a real interest. And who who the heck am I to turn around and say, oh, they've offered you a job? You can't do that. It's about me. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Because I know I'm, you know, I'm intelligent enough to know that my wanting him to stay is not enough to make somebody give up a lifelong dream, you know. And I knew how important that was to him, and I knew it was a real of real interest to him, and I knew I would be okay, you know. At the end of our show, there was a sense of panic about where am I going to go, what am I going to do, but. I think since that show finished and since that time where I was quite panicked about it, I've made a real point of ensuring that I never feel that way again. And when my last show finished with with Merrick Watts and Jules Schiller, which was a show I dearly loved, when that wrapped up, I was so sad it wrapped up but so okay because I really knew that it would be fine. And I think a big part of that was knowing what it had felt like at that time when Paul and I finished and I hadn't necessarily feathered my nest in the way that I should have done yeah. and I just thought I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never do that again. When it all finished up with Paul, you were sort of still there at, at Triple M and, you know, while I knew you, I didn't really get to know you until you were sort of jettisoned into the, the grill team and and took over as newsreader for a, a small amount of t- time. Hilarious. Um, Hilarious. What, what, <laughs> what a slap in the face to the actual credible news journalist of this fair country. Uh, oh, my God. What was, what was that like when the idea was originally sort of ball put into your court? They, they, was, was it a case of, like, they had to find something for yeah. you? So at that point in time, I was just grateful they found something. Um, so, and and the longer term prospect was to be that newsreader that chipped into the show and then eventually move into the show. And that's eventually what happened, except there were some interesting timings of things that meant Maddie Johns had surprisingly signed onto a show, even though they had discounted him and didn't think they did. So I ended up kind of warehoused for a year, which was, a, which was not the greatest year of my career. Um, but so that was the, that was 
was the sort of plan. And at the time, you know, you have to be a bit flexible in this gig um, and to turn around and say, well, no, I'm not going to do that unless I am, you know, the star of the show. You can't afford to throw all your toys out of the cot, can you? Exactly. There was no point. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a crack and I'm going to chip in from the sidelines. I'm going to do the best job at that that I can possibly do. Sucked as a newsreader. Sucked. I I thought every day my boss would come into me and be like, where do you go when you read the news? Like, we want you to be you. And I I think I felt like I was being me, but I think what was happening was I was putting on that newsreader's voice that nobody can help but do when they get into the news booth, except for actual news News professionals who sound completely natural. But I think because it was brand new to me and I was trying to straddle the line between okay, I've mostly done comedy, but now I'm a news person, so how does that? So I think I made the leap too far to serious and I just didn't. Do a good job of it. it. Was really bad. Yeah, we didn't really have a boss at the time, which didn't really help you and your development as a as a newsreader <laughs> as such. But yeah. um, that was that's by the by. And then all of a sudden, you were on the grill team, and then you weren't, mm-hmm. um, which is the whole warehouse thing. Which is it's a weird thing that happens in radio when you know greater minds at play then decide that you know you're going to be doing something else, and then all of a sudden we find out that. Um, Merrick Watts has signed with the network and you're going to be part of, of that show. What was, you mentioned it earlier, you said you absolutely loved that. Loved it. What was that like from the get-go, the way that they put the team together and I guess you were thankful that you were part of it yeah. to begin with? I'd actually, and interestingly enough at that point, I was in a very different situation than I was at the time when I went in to do the news for the grill team because I had basically, after I'd been warehoused, I had decided I would leave radio. So that last six months of my contract there was basically me. I was I was a foot out the door. And so when Mez came in, not a single part of me thought that I would, you know, that I would be doing that show with him. I just thought, okay, I'm I'm out of here. That's a really nice addition. I thought it was I thought they did a great job getting him across the road. He was a great name, does a great show. Uh, and then my boss came and approached me and said, oh, you know, we um, do you, have you met Merrick before? And I said no. And he said, oh, he said he'd be interested in doing the show with you. And so he had heard the show that I'd done with Paul. Right. And he was friends with Paul. He used to work with Paul Murray at, um, at Nova. And so he suggested that I come in and, and do the show with him and, you know, we do a trial. And, and he'd also uh, suggested Jules Schiller. And the three of us got in the studio to do a trial and I believe there were two other women that they had on the list to trial. Um, I'm not sure whether they had other combinations of guys or, or anything like that. Um, but we got in the studio and we were there with Sam Mack, who is a producing gun there at Osterio. And I can still remember we did the first break of our trial show and the, we played a song and the, we finished the break and Sam said, well, that's a radio show. <laughs> so, how was, how was that like to to hear that from somebody that's so well respected, like Sam? Mate? Yeah, it was great. But I think also the three of us had so much experience that we knew straight away this will work. We gel, uh, and there was just something in. I've worked on a lot of shows where you start the ball rolling. You have to have a bit of time to flesh it out, and it takes some time. Uh, and and none of those shows were as as good that stage as that one was. Now, that's not to say that the content was killer and it was the best break that you've ever heard on radio, but the three of us chipped in. There was equal sort of weight of everything. We sort of knew how to take the conversation somewhere. The elements were there to say, right, if we're doing a show every day, this combination will work and we'll take topics somewhere. So, yeah, we sort of knew, and and from that point on, it was it was pretty much like this will this will be the show. That's it. Would you have been big enough to say you put me in this p- position with two guys? If it didn't work, that's not going to be the show for me. Or would you have just ridden the ride? And so I know it's a really difficult question to answer because, given the fact that there was a chemistry to it. Oh, you mean if there was no chemistry, yeah. would I have taken the job? Yeah. No, absolutely not. So I, I said I had said already, uh, and certainly in my mind, I had decided that I wanted to. I know my strengths now. I've worked enough to know my strengths. I also uh, like being happy, and I know that my happiness is very much uh, tied to 
what whether or not I'm achieving and succeeding and whether I'm doing my best work. And I know that there are certain environments that aren't conducive to that. And that's just like normal everyday life, right? Sometimes you don't have the right chemistry or connection with people. I also know that I wanted to work a certain way. And the thing about Jules and Mares were they were both really hard workers with a massive respect for radio, an understanding of the craft. They wanted to work. They would be in there at 7am if you needed them to be. And I worked very much like that too. So we seemed to have a very similar outlook. If I had have sat in that show with two people where it was a little bit of a struggle, you know, there was one guy who was super arrogant who wanted to swan in five minutes before mm. the show, I wouldn't have taken the job. No way. Because I also know I wouldn't have been very good on air at in a show like that. There's a ridiculous saying that says, you know, what you get out of it is what you put in. Uh, but it's so true when it, it, it comes to something like a radio show where you've got a couple of hours to content to fill it. Like, like you say, if somebody just swans in, it's just not going to gel mm. at all, is it? Yeah, exactly. And you have to, you know, you have to know that the way that you work works for the people that you work with. So if you do swan in and that's how the team works and everybody's okay with that, but, but you know, I, I always think that you need to be there, you need to be present, you need to be putting in the hours because the last thing you want in your team is resentment from anybody, mm. you know, especially if you expect the world of a producer and you're going to turn in six hours after they turn up and just take all their good work. Um, I, I don't know. I just find that uncomfortable. I just wouldn't be able to do that. And I think resentment in a team, you know, you have to have an environment where people feel like they're working with people that they like the way they work. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was a great thing about that show. I, I love working with those boys. And the transition then came to what we mentioned early, the freelance world. Was it a case for you of bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell? Like how do these uh, opportunities come for you, like in terms of, okay, you're on the, the, the Today Show, you're on Paul's show at night time, you're on something like The Verdict, you're writing for news.com, you do some stuff for Mamma Mia, you know. How do you sell yourself so that you can get into those opportunities of the, the freelance life? It's just a lot of... Knock, knock, knock. I'm you know, here. exactly. It's a lot of reaching out to people. It's a lot of making connections. It's a lot of saying, okay, I've written this for this person. Now who can I go to and contact to write more? And, and you know, like with anything else, the more you do, the more opportunities you get. Mm. But, you know, that it's just literally pounding the pavement and going out there and getting to the stage. We're at the beginning while I wasn't afraid of going out on my own, I was very determined to drum up enough independent work that I wouldn't have to worry about the phone ringing and mm. I'm certainly at that stage now. And I always wanted to get to the stage where, look, would I love to work in radio on the right show again? Of course. Do I want to work in radio just for the sake of it? No, absolutely not, and nor do I need to. So I think I had a, I was very determined at that stage. Now, that's not to say I had a no, – I didn't have a very quiet six months mm. at the beginning of the first year, uh, and, and a lot of times there where I thought, crap. You're out without a paddle. And yeah. And – you're trying to get the water out of the boat as quickly as you can. Yeah, exactly. Just to stay afloat. Exactly. And you've also, but I think in those moments, I could not be accused of being lazy. Like I had really tried to contact everybody and get, and, you know, nothing was coming back. And I think at that point, when you're in the beginnings of that, it can feel like a really long time between phone calls. But once those little things, and and ultimately, I mean, I think this is what happens all the time in anything I've ever done. I always feel like when you just when you when you're at rock bottom. Not that I would say I was at rock bottom, but I was at that stage where I was like, honest to God, is this ever going to happen? What and the hell am I going to do? What am I going to do? And it's usually at that moment that something happens and then another thing happens and that's certainly what happened for me. And it's taken a while to get to the stage where I'm at now, but now. I mean, I have potentially taken on too much, but I think anybody in this business, particularly freelance, knows you never say no to anything. And so then eventually, because you just never know when the next bit of work and you always remember those times when things were quiet and you don't want to go back there. So you then end up spinning a million plates somehow trying to fit things into a 24-hour day and get sleep in there. Um, but it's fun. I like it. We had a sort of similar experience in, in many ways and the, the way that you just explained it there kind of uh, sparked 
my memory into what happened to me as well in the fact that, okay, there was like a really lean period where I was reaching out to all of my contacts, letting them know that I needed work um, because we had a baby on the way and all the rest of it. Anyway, long story short, we got to the point where my daughter was born and then it was like, okay, perhaps I needed that period to help my partner get through yeah. what was a difficult pregnancy for us and then boom, all of a sudden contacts just kept on coming out of the woodwork and mm-hmm. you just like, where were you guys six months ago? But then I look back and I just go, there's actually a reason for that and then the way that I kind of look back on work now and I'm sure you're similar is like work is like a paid permanent networking gig, isn't mm, it really? Mm. Because you never know who's going to help you down the track. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's, you know, there's obviously merit in, especially in this industry anyway, it's so small and I have come across the same people a million times and I think if I had have behaved in a way that I've seen some people behave, I'm not sure I'd have a lot of favours to pull, you know. Mm. And I'm not really one for favours, for asking for favours, but sometimes you get in that situation where you need to call somebody or email or, yeah. and, you know, I think it's important to have uh, conducted yourself in a way that you know that you can always put that call in and that person will answer, you know. because you, know, you have bridges, right? Exactly, exactly. You never know when you're going to need them. With your writing, is that something that you found really comfortable? Because, you know, I'm not going to blow smoke up your backside here, but (laughs) I feel every time I read a Rachel Corbett column, you're speaking directly to me. And I think that's got to be your objective, right? You Mm -hmm. know, for the majority of people, that's why you're writing it. And I can hear you talking about what you're writing about. Was that hard to develop? I love that you say that. Um, And... I think I've gotten better at it. I think um, there's a part of me that has always sort of known how to kind of put things together in that way. I guess I don't think I was a great writer to begin with, but I sort of knew how to structure things. Um, and and since then, you know, I've, I've gone and studied journalism at university to learn about a different type of writing. And, you know, I go and do writing courses and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm very big on the old adult education. You know, mm-hmm. I think you can never learn too much. And, and I like to sort of add to the, um, add to, you know, the toolkit. But I think, um, yeah, in that in that writing, you know, you also get better at working out what works, you know, because you can get a real sense of the feedback from stuff, especially the stuff that you have online and, and feedback from your editors. And, and, you know, if you get to the point where you've worked in creative enough, you can be quite self-critical. So I think I'm quite good at looking at stuff back and going, that didn't work, That and trying my best to, to sort of get to the stage where I get better at that. Um, but I see, see all that stuff as a work in progress, you know. I just I, hopefully I will get better and better at that. It's not all well received. How do you deal with those that are, say, not on board with your social commentary? <laughs> uh, I believe that I I never say anything I don't believe and I'm not a very opinionated person in the sense that I'm not very – I don't have controversial views, you know. My views are usually built – on a foundation of common sense. So I look at something and I can, you know, even in the most heinous things, I can, if you can tell me why that's right, I can sort of understand. So I I don't think I ever say anything that's kind of shocking. So because of that, and because I only ever speak from a position of like, this is my opinion and I've, you know. It's observational, right? Yeah, it's observational. And I'm not trying to shock. I think I have faith in what I'm putting out there and I think probably in the early days when I was a bit more insecure, I would maybe do a bit more writing or even stuff on air that was more in terms of what I thought I should be saying or what I thought would get a reaction. And I remember when I would get a reaction that wasn't great from that, I that would hurt a lot because I felt like, oh, but I didn't really mean that. It wasn't really me. Whereas now if people go nuts about the fact that, you know, I've written something, it it sort of doesn't affect me, doesn't worry me. How are you with it writing something down, then being able to go back and edit, drawing that comparison to radio, live radio, where you're on the spot at that time and whatever you say, once it's out there, it's gone. Mm. Whereas 
when you're writing, you've got that ability to go back and, and just ditch it or, or you yeah. know, recraft it. Yeah. Um, do you find that aspect of it enjoyable? Yeah, I do like that. It's also a lot more pressure because what you're putting out there is being edited and refined. And so, you know, you think, oh, goodness, I'm sending this to you. And so it's, I don't have any of the excuses of, well, I just threw, it just came out, you mm. know, because you've actually had time. So there's even more pressure to make it um, good. Uh, but I do like the immediacy of radio, you know. I really love just sort of being in that studio and saying things and working out, you know, and being surprised by something someone says to you and taking it somewhere else. So there are elements of both that I like, but it is I do enjoy the process of of having written some something. Often writing itself is a punish. Yeah. But once you get to the end point, you know, where that, that bank, blank piece of paper can be awful to be staring at. Uh, but then once you've got something that you're kind of fashioning, then I find that process very satisfying. But I, I have had a few articles in my time where I've just thought, oh, this is just, this will not come out. It's so frustrating. Oh, and then the, I guess the third medium is TV. Was that something that, you enjoyed being invited on to the Today Show, invited on to Paul Murray's show on Sky News, mm-hmm. just talking about issues of the day that uh, everyday people are, are talking about. Yeah, because in in many ways it's what I've done on radio for years. That is your bread and butter radio craft, you know. It's what are the stories people are talking about, what is your opinion on it, what's your spin on it, uh, how can you make that interesting. So it's it was a, a natural progression. I really enjoy working for Channel 9. Everybody there has been absolutely flippin' delightful to me. Mm. Um, and, you know, the Today Show, you know, from the first day I rocked onto that set, everybody on my very first day, you know, all the cast members came up and gave me a hug and a kiss and welcomed me to the show. And so it was really, it was really lovely. And then doing the verdict, I know for all the for all the crap it got, I really enjoyed doing that show. You know, I I thought it was interesting. I thought I really enjoyed the fact that we got, you know, a fair bit of time to think about the topics and what we were going to talk about. So you had some real time to prepare. <laughs> what, what what goes into a show like that for people that are that are listening to that? A producer contacts you on mm-hmm. because it's I was on a Monday night, was it? Um, yeah, I can't remember now. Do um, I can't remember. Either. Yeah, <laughs> um, but, but like, is it? Do you, have, night, yeah. do you have a couple of days in advance in terms of okay, producer contacts you or emails you? Okay, these are the topics we're going to talk about, yeah. and you get to formulate your opinion. Yeah. So you know, usually there'll be something that you're across. You'll have a a basic opinion in uh, on it. And for me, I always think, okay, well, what am I going to bring to the conversation? So, you know, if there's four or five topics and I'd read 10, 20 articles, whatever it takes for me to find the angle that most interests me, you know, get a bit of new information. And so for me, just as an intellectual exercise, I really enjoyed that, you know, because you don't get a great deal of time to get that in depth. And it was essentially a debating show. So the whole point was, what is your argument? And if you get somebody to come back at you, how can you be researched enough to stand your ground on your point? So I really enjoyed it. It's kind of like a bit of a, a shouty show in many, many, yeah. many ways. And yeah. here's Rachel Corbett, who I know is just like always very considered. How do you sit next to somebody like Mark Latham, who you know <laughs> is just going to be a powder keg from the get-go, and then all of a sudden you've got to come in as, as Rachel with your intelligent and, I guess, balanced view on the world? I like a good fight. You know, so I would I would often just hope that he would say something that I had a strong opinion for or against. The interesting thing that was that there were some there were some shows where he said some things I truly agreed with, um, and then other times he said things that were just out of this world, off the wall. Uh, but I really enjoy those opportunities because I'm like, great, you want to say that, fantastic. But let's let's back and forth about this and back up why you're saying that. So I really enjoyed those opportunities. I love it when somebody goes nuts. Because it just it's it's just good fodder, and it's going to be back this year, right? Yes, it will um, be back. So you'll be taking your seat there again yes, and I shall uh, be. offering the balance store considered view. <laughs> That's it. I will be back. Yes, here at Afters teaching. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you thought you'd be able to do, or how did it all eventuate, or how did it come about that you were like, okay, 
I'm comfortable now talking about something that I've done for more than a decade. Uh, it was interesting because I wanted to, you know, I came to them and I said, look, you know, there were quite a few mates of ours in radio who had done guest lectures and things here and had always said to me, you should go and do some guest lectures and do that stuff. And I, I just had never really thought about it. And then eventually I thought, oh, I might just go and send my email, you know, send an email and say, you know, I don't know what you guys do there with guest, le- guest lecturers, but here is my experience. And if you wanted me to come in and have a talk for half an hour or whatever, then I'd be more than happy to do that. So I came in and started doing a bit of that. And then like with anything, you know, eventually somebody says, oh, what about we've got this two-day course, would you like to teach it? And then there's like, oh, we've got this longer course, would you like to teach that? And oh, would you like to develop a course for us? And so it's just been a bit of a progression. But it's been a wonderful exercise because I, you know, you sort of don't get many opportunities in radio to really sit back and think about what you've learned and what you do. And then you get into an environment like this and you are sort of talking people through what they're doing, giving them tips on how to improve what they're doing and you realise, oh, my God, I have learned something mm. from this industry. You know, you know what you're talking about. And so for me that's been a really nice thing to realise because, you know, it's very easy to get through that whole career and think, what do I do every day? Mm. And then you realise, oh, actually, you do do a lot. <laughs> What's it like when you see somebody, a student of yours, that gets that light bulb moment? Is it very rewarding? I'd imagine it would be. It's just like it would get like a a bit of a buzz or a bit of a kick out of, okay, I've actually imparted some knowledge on someone and someone's actually used it for their benefit. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's also amazing to see people who aren't necessarily very confident behind a microphone get to the end of a week-long course and feel like they can deliver something on air. So there's a lot in it that I really enjoy and I like, you know, being there and helping them sort of overcome their fears and help them feel more comfortable and confident in what they're doing and, and also just to see you know, when you're talking to people about what they're doing and giving them tips and things and then see that what they're doing actually change and you go, oh, I'm helping, I'm helping them sort of grow and do that stuff. So it's been, it's been really, really rewarding. I really enjoy it a lot. It's, it's, yeah, it's great. And the Paul and Rach podcast, was that something of just keeping the radio thing alive? Because to me, it's something that I've discovered in the last year and it's like a whole different world out there that people are using and listening to content when they can and uh, the Paul and Rach uh, show lives on. Yeah, and it was, I mean, we, you know, neither of us were doing radio shows and we sort of thought, oh, we haven't worked together in a really long time. We like working together. It was never something that we sort of thought we're doing this because we want to get a show on air somewhere. Mm. It was just something that we thought, oh, it's it's a skill that we want to keep up. We like working together and it's and it's been really fun. I've enjoyed it a lot. We haven't pushed it out very much. You know, we sort mm. of do it for an audience that exists there, but we've never really chased a greater, wider audience. We kind of do it more for the people that listen and, and for us and um, but it's been good because, you know, you learn a lot of skills, editing, putting things up online, you know, uh, and all these kind of things that I can now teach kids, you know, and tell them how to, to, to do it. So it's been a long journey of self-teaching, but now I'm at the stage where those are excellent skills to, to have. And I really, you know, it's really, it's really good fun working with Paul each week. Can we get one final thing out of you before you go, yes. Rachel? Can you give us some advice for anyone that's looking to break into radio? What would what would be the key things that you would uh, say? I think going to, you know, if you really want to learn the craft, then, you know, going and doing the one-year course at Afters is a really good way in because they're very committed to getting their students employed at the end of that year. The other option I would say is just ringing a radio station and asking to volunteer. Can I answer your phones? Can I, you know, sit in on the show? Can I, you know, go in there and help in some way? Um, you know, if, you, if you're seen as keen and you're willing to work, and you're interested in the industry or, you know, getting on the promotions team and going out in the in the promotional vehicles and handing stuff out and doing that kind of stuff. It doesn't take long once you're in the in the building, if you're competent at what you do, to really move up through the ranks, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's just being proactive about getting in the business and, and, and trying to learn, once you're in there, learning as much as you can. Rachel Corbett, thanks very much for joining the Media Mates podcast. My pleasure. There she is, Rachel Corbett, and I think you can tell from what you just heard that she really is a hardworking and very, very special individual. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Rachel, please send her a tweet. She's at Rachel Corbett. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.